0: Well, good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, if you would, please grab a Bible. If you don't have one, you can find one under a seat nearby. And we'll be looking in, at 1 Corinthians together. So, in the Bibles that are nearby, that's on page 170… or sorry, 1176. And we just sang, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when He comes. So, the power of God is seen in conquering death and raising Christ from the dead. That power will be at work when God raises His dead people from their graves upon Christ's return, or those who are living transformed radically at that time. And in between those times, um, we don't lose the expectation of power and actually resurrection. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul goes from thinking about Christ's powerful resurrection and reign over all things to say, and you were dead, and He raised you up with Christ. In other words, the power that raised Jesus from the dead raises us to new life spiritually now, our inner being, and then physically at His return. And that power is at work day after day in moments just like this as we hear Him speak the voice that spoke creation into existence, speaks through His Word in very seemingly ordinary gatherings like this. So, in light of that, let's pray for God's power to be at work here this morning. Our Father, we come to You recognizing that if You do not decide to do anything here, nothing will be done. Uh, We'll be here, and we'll leave. But we have great expectation that the power that rose Jesus from the dead and the power that will raise us from the dead is at work here. And so by your Holy Spirit's power, would you open our eyes to behold the wonders of Jesus? And would you transform our hearts to become like him? Please give hope and comfort and transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 15. This is an amazing section of the Bible and fitting for us to look at on Easter Sunday, uh, because this is the most extensive text in the Bible with a sustained focus on the resurrection. So the Apostle Paul wrote this to a bunch of Christians who were gathered um, in a city called Corinth about 20 years or so after Jesus did rise from the dead. And there's a note that rings from the beginning of this chapter that says Jesus really did rise from the dead in real space and time history. So it wasn't a myth, it wasn't just metaphorical. Now that's often how people take it. They either dismiss it as an ancient religious myth, or they accept it of sorts, but they accept Jesus' resurrection as a kind of religious metaphor. It's one metaphor for reminding us that spring always comes after winter. There's always hope in loss. Something good comes out of hard times. And plenty of people will be celebrating uh, Easter in this way this morning. I saw a Twitter poll a few weeks ago uh, that was asking, um, I believe directly to pastors, asking if they think the resurrection really happened or if it was a metaphor. A number of pastors chimed in and said they embraced it just as a metaphor uh, because Uh, they would say it would make no difference to their ministry and their sermons, whether or not Jesus really did arise from the dead or not. Now, the text we're going to look at, I want to be clear, it says that that's not real Christianity. Um, Jesus' resurrection isn't a myth or a metaphor. It's a historical reality, and it's the reason we actually can have hope in the midst of hard times, not because we have just this sense that spring always comes after winter, but we recognize that the winter in our lives is often long and hard, but there is a real concrete hope to come in the age to come. So we'll ask this question this morning, why does it matter that Jesus really rose from the dead? Not just a myth or as a metaphor, but really in space and time history, historically, what difference does that make? And we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 for the answer. It shows why the resurrection of Jesus, as a real historical event, matters. So we'll look at the chapter as a whole. We're not going to be able to look at a lot of the details here. I didn't want to just focus on one small part of this chapter, but really get a, give a wide-angle lens at the whole and the meaning of the resurrection. So here's what we'll do. We'll walk through the chapter's major sections. There's about seven of them, and they show us seven reasons why the resurrection matters and why it's actually worth gathering this morning to celebrate this. So, if you are new to exploring Christianity, I hope this is particularly helpful to you, uh, that you would get a sense about who the real Jesus is, and one way you figure that out is by discerning, did the resurrection happen or not? Because that, that's the question that matters, You may have a lot of questions about what it would mean to follow Jesus, the ethics of Jesus, what it would mean to be a Christian, but really at the heart of it, you've got to settle, did He rise or not? Because if He didn't, then who cares, really? Um, And if He did, though, well, then everything He says goes. We take Him whole, because that means He's who He said He was, and He's the King of creation. So let's read the first eight verses here of the chapter, and then we'll walk through the whole chapter Um, together. So, 1 Corinthians 15, page 1176 in the Bibles that are under chairs nearby. Now, I would remind you, brothers, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received— So, side note, he's delivering the gospel message to them. It's the same one he received. So, this is about 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Paul received it about two or three years after the resurrection of Jesus. So, this is the ancient historic confession, not something made up a hundred years later by Christians who uh, wanted to make things up about Jesus. So, he's received it, and here's what it is. Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Really just have one main Point or thing to say this morning, and that's this Jesus' resurrection means that everyone who trusts him is welcomed into a real, hopeful, eternal future. So, that's the main point. Now, here's seven realities from this chapter that fill that out as we walk through this. First, Jesus' resurrection is a believable, historic reality. It's reasonable to believe. Now, that's, of course, not what many people think today. They think not only did this not happen, it's actually irrational to think that it did. Now, certainly, some people do believe without really thinking it through, but many Christians have given this a lot of thought. Many people become Christians without giving it thought, and then later they realize, I've got to really think this through because it matters whether or not it happened, It matters if it's rational to believe or not. So Christianity is not kind of like, well, you have reason and rationality over here, but then you have this thing called blind faith that's actually irrational. That's not real Christianity. Um, Real Christianity happened in space and time history as Jesus came, lived, died, and rose, and appeared to people. So it's a believable reality historic reality, and at the beginning of this text that we just read, there's two lines of evidence that Paul gives here, eyewitness testimony and the fulfillment of Scriptures. So notice with me, first, Jesus' resurrection was confirmed with eyewitness testimony. So Paul says Jesus died, and He was buried, and then in verses 5 and 8, He says Jesus appeared. He rose, and then He appeared to many. So now look what he emphasized here. He appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, Then he appeared to the 12 disciples altogether, and then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So this is within about 40 days after he rose. And then Paul says that most of them are still alive. They're alive because that resurrection event and those appearances happened just a couple decades before. So he's giving an invitation to skeptics to check this out. The resurrection wasn't a hidden secret, but an open public fact. Now, of course, there's alternate explanations for what to do with all these people who claim to be eyewitnesses, right? Some people think they didn't actually see Jesus, they had hallucinations, or as one scholar recently put it, they had bereavement visions. So they longed for Him to be alive so much that they imagined that they did see Him. But even many scholars find that um, implausible, not just because there were um, so many of them but also because Jewish and Greek people were not inclined to believe in the resurrection of a man in the middle of history like this. It was completely contrary to their expectations or even desires. It was also socially costly to believe in Jesus' resurrection. Paul would later be killed for this. He was certainly suffering at this time for it. So the eyewitness testimony mattered to the early Christians and showed that it's plausible to believe this. So, Paul also emphasizes how the resurrection surprisingly fulfilled ancient scriptures and brought to completion this whole storyline of scriptures and the story of history. He says in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus' death and resurrection happened. Did you notice that phrase he repeated two times? According to the scriptures. So, he's saying that even though people were not expecting this, we can now see that it was the clear fulfillment of ancient promises, promises of resurrection, like from the prophet Isaiah or Ezekiel or Hosea or the Psalms. The whole Old Testament is a story that's waiting for a conclusion, and Jesus comes to bring it to completion. So, here's the point. The resurrection of Jesus is a believable historic reality. You can check it out. You can read the Old Testament and see, is this a story that's fulfilled in Jesus? And is it credible that there are eyewitnesses there? We're there. So, this was confessed from the earliest days. It was confirmed by testimony. It's fulfillment of Scripture. Here's a second reason why the resurrection of Jesus matters. It is the foundation for all Christian belief. In other words, without it, without what we're focusing on this morning, you do not have Christianity at all. This is Paul's logic in the next section, in verses 12 to 19. He says that if Jesus has not been raised, then there is no future resurrection from the dead for us, and what that means then is that sermons like this are a waste of time, and trusting Jesus' faith is pointless. I'm not overstating it. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, it's empty, and your faith is in vain. It also means that Christians uh, lose the very thing that's so precious to them, which is the forgiveness of sins. That's verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The wonder of Christianity is that people like you and I, born into this world with a heart inclined to sin and then just racking them up day after day. Some of us know that very well, even this very morning, and the wonder of Christianity is that you who were in your sins and rightfully under God's judgment, which would be upon you forever, can be taken out of your sins and put into Jesus, clothed in his righteousness with an eternal future where those sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, buried in a, an endless, endlessly bottomed pit, and you're free and forgiven. And Paul's saying, if Christ isn't actually risen from the dead, then you believe that in vain, you're actually still in your sins, and you don't have a solution for them. The heart of the good news of the gospel is the death of Jesus along with his resurrection. So Paul said in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins. Um, The language we use to describe what he's talking about there is that Jesus died as a substitutionary sacrifice, right? He was substituted for us. He died in our place, and as a sacrifice for our sins. He took the death we deserve, so we don't have to endure that. And if there's no resurrection, then that did not actually matter because He was buried and just stayed dead, and death wins. But when Jesus was raised from the dead, it shows that God gives His approval of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. If Jesus didn't rise, then death death is the last word, if he did rise, then there is hope. Notice verse 18, he says, if he didn't rise, then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So, if Jesus didn't rise, there's no hope anyone's going to rise, because they're still in their sins, and death is still upon them. And this all leads to this devastating conclusion in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, you do not bet on Jesus saying, well, I mean, even if I'm wrong, at least it helps me out in this life. I mean, Paul's saying, no, if, if Jesus is your hope just in this life, you're actually most to be pitied. So, here's the point. We're not playing make-believe here. Without Jesus's resurrection, there's actually no reason to hold on to Christian beliefs. But if Jesus did rise, then we do have reason for eternal joy, and we have confidence that our sins are removed from us, and there's a hope of resurrection. And so that does lead then to the third reality. Jesus' resurrection actually guarantees our resurrection as those who trust Him. So in verses 20 to 23, Paul says that Jesus rose as, and here's the image he uses, as the first fruits of a great harvest to come. So the picture is that there's one great harvest, and when that harvest comes, You know, the very first part of that is called the first fruits. So the first fruits are gathered, and that's a signal that the rest is yet to come. One harvest, first fruits at the beginning, the rest is guaranteed once you get that first fruits up. So this means then to connect it to Jesus, Jesus' resurrection is organically connected to our future resurrection. There's one great harvest of resurrection, and in the middle of history, the first fruits rose. The first fruits of that great harvest began, which means when we look back in history and see Jesus' resurrection, we see the beginning of the great resurrection to come that His people will be part of. It's one great harvest organically connected, which means we have great confidence then. If Jesus rose, all who are united to Him will rise. So, it's not just Jesus rose, and that's kind of an isolated historical fact, And then we have also this other teaching about the future eternal life of Christians in a resurrected body. No, there's one great harvest to come, and it's already begun, because Jesus has been risen as the firstfruits. So, this is what he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. And then in verse 23, but each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So here's what this means it's not just that Jesus rose back then, and that we also know will rise. No, there's one great harvest to come, and the beginning of that harvest has started in the middle of history. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of that which is yet to come, which means it's just a matter of time, it's guaranteed. When you die, if you are in Christ, you will rise because you're part of this great harvest. And this means, fourth then, that Jesus' resurrection set in motion the death of death. So, Paul says that Jesus' death and resurrection was a royal victory. Jesus is a king, and in His resurrection, He launched His kingdom. When He rose from the dead, He showed that death has no power over him, though it's had power over everyone else, because he's creation, creation's king. He's the giver of life. He's the resurrector of life. And so, he'll reign as king until he puts all his enemies under his feet, including death itself. This is verses 24 to 28. Look at verse 24 with me. So, after this great harvest, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father to to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. So death looks like it has a lot of power right now, it looks like it's winning, it's buried our loved ones will bury you unless Jesus returns before that time. But Jesus burst back from the dead, and He says to us, just wait, because He's in charge, and He has conquered death, and He will finally ultimately put death to death. One of the best illustrations of this is what happened in World War II. So the war officially ended on VE Day in 1945. This was Victory in Europe Day, celebrations erupted, you know, all over the place. But almost a year before that was when the Allied forces took the beaches of Normandy and everyone knew that essentially VE Day was coming, right? It was as good as done. They call it D-Day. It was the launch of the mission that led to the ultimate victory and it became inevitable. So Easter is the D-Day of the great victory of Christ and his mission to conquer death. It has set in motion. As he came up from his burial, he buried death. It sets in motion the ultimate destruction of death at his return. So, you know, think about it. Just driving yesterday and drove by a graveyard. Those are battlefields. And death has won for now, right? Oppressing and putting its cold hand over all of those bodies. And yet, one day when Jesus returns, those battlefields will erupt with joy because all of God's people will rise to live forever in a renewed creation and will celebrate the victory over death that Jesus has won. So, this means that death is not our friend, it's our enemy. So, it's true that for Christians, death becomes gain because we gain Christ, right? We leave here our spirit goes to be with Jesus. But that's not our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope is to be living with Jesus in a new creation with resurrected bodies. So death is an enemy because it rips us apart from one another and it rips our body apart from our immaterial self. It's unnatural. It's an enemy. And Jesus is going to make us whole again in a new creation and restore body and soul together. Fifth. Fifth. Jesus' resurrection means that life has meaning. So, Paul does not uh, jump right to continuing this conversation about the death of death. He'll get there. Um, but instead, he has this interesting section in verses 29 to 34. He says a, numbering of, a number of fascinating things here. We don't have time to get into it. But here's his conclusion. We know that life has meaning, and it's the resurrection that makes sense of this. The resurrection is the reason why we can believe that life actually matters. So, that's the end of verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, here's the conclusion, right? If there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? A saying of the time. He's saying if Jesus has not been raised and there's no future resurrection to come, then what is the lasting significance of life? What hope do we really have if tomorrow we die? And that tomorrow may be tomorrow, it may be 20 years out, it may be 60 years out, but it's always going to be tomorrow at some point, and it's going to be pretty quick. And so, what, what's the point? So, Paul just says, yeah, there would be no point, just eat and drink, because tomorrow we die. But the point is this, you do know, we know deep in our bones that life has meaning. We do know there's hope, but what can explain that hope? What can reasonably explain why we have hope and think there's meaning in life? What can make sense of it? Well, it's only a world that will lead to a great resurrection to come. The reason life matters now is because there's a real hope that what matters in life right now will actually last and not just vanish. Our lives aren't just a vapor. We'll last forever. Now, this is different than what seems to be the most common alternative to Christianity today in our culture, which is naturalism. So naturalism says that this material world is all that there is, and this life is all that we have. But the issue is that the philosophers who take this seriously understand the implications of that way of viewing life. It means that there's no objective grounding for morality. There's no objective reason for hope. There's no transcendent meaning to life, and so it's ultimately a hopeless worldview. And many people have grasped this, and it's led them to despair. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there. But of course, even as our culture embraces naturalism more and more, many are still holding on to this sense of meaning, right? Most seem to. They value human rights. They promote love. And justice and hope and beauty. The problem is that they're doing this without having a rational reason to hold on to these things, to have an objective reason. Things like universal human rights, equality, love for our neighbor, these aren't just givens. These are built into the world by God. And then, even in our culture, it's because of the historic influence of Jesus. He rose from the dead, and those who believed it started influencing Western culture with some of these values, and so they appear to be just givens, but they aren't. And so, the historical influence of Jesus on Western civilization is what explains it. So, without God and without a resurrection future, we don't have objective meaning for hope. So, the implication of verse 32 is relevant here. If there's no resurrection, just think it through. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. But here's the implication if it is true. We do know that life matters. We do know that just saying eat, drink, for tomorrow we die doesn't actually make sense of what we know in our bones to be true about life and beauty and goodness. We know deep in our hearts that love and hope and truth and beauty are real, and it matters. These things matter because you matter, because God has made you, and because Jesus rose from the dead to rescue you, and because all of history is moving toward an eternal future where these things continue to matter because Jesus has given us that hope. Here's the sixth reason the resurrection Jesus, of Jesus matters. It affirms the goodness of embodied life, life as a whole human being, embodied. The first century Greco-Roman world disdained the human body. Many philosophers that, said that we are, you know, souls trapped in a body. The spirit's good, the the body is bad. Many didn't have a problem saying that spirits go on living after death, in some sense, forever. Death meant good riddance to this prison of our bodies. And so, an issue Paul is writing to address was the idea that our future actually is going to be embodied. There's real resurrected bodies. Because even Christians were starting to get caught up in this way of thinking and thinking, no, that's ridiculous. What kind of body would, would that be? We don't want bodies, anyways right these are just kind of prison houses for our souls and so in verse 35 paul raises this question and you can sense this skeptical tone that he's putting into it it's this rhetorical question he says but someone will ask how are the dead raised with what kind of body do they come you can almost hear like how are corpses raised really like what kind of body will those be and is that anything we want to have to do with so paul takes almost the entire rest of the chapter to answer that question And he says that our future bodies will be different than the bodies that we see looking around this room right now, Um, but they also will still be fundamentally human bodies. Your body will be transformed to be better, but it will still be your body. So here's what he does. He compares this to a seed being planted in the ground and then coming up as a crop. He gives a bunch of contrast then between our body and our future body, our current one and our future one. So look at verses 42 and 43. He says, what is sown, so this body that goes in the ground, is perishable. But what's raised is imperishable. So it can't perish or die anymore. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory or honor. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in So he's saying, look at the graveyards, look at the tombs. We see dishonor, weakness, perishability, but those bodies will come up again, never to die, and with glory and honor and raised in power. And then he gives the clearest contrast. He says that our first body is like our first parents, Adam and Eve's, but our resurrected body will be like Christ's. We're all living in bodies like Adam and Eve, our first parents, and in light of sin, they're weak and we all start powering down at some point earlier than we'd wish. And what was Christ's resurrected body like, though? He was buried in dishonor and weakness, and yet He rose in glory and power differently, never to die again, right? It was different. It was glorious, but it was still His body. People could still talk to Him. He was still walking around. He was eating food. It was Him. And so, here's the point. Jesus' past resurrection gives us a glimpse of what our future resurrection will be like. It shows us that our physical bodies matter. We're human beings, not just spirits. God created this physical world, and He said it was good, and He's never gone back on that. It is good. And so, even though it's now weak and dishonorable because of sin and perishable, He's going to resurrect this planet and all of His people to live on it forever. So that's our ultimate hope, not just having our spirits go to heaven when we die, but living with Jesus and His people in a new creation forever. Okay, so all of this leads to the final reality that Jesus' resurrection gives us. It means that every moment of life matters. So, because Jesus rose from the dead, it means that He rose for you. It means that you can be forgiven of your sins And it means that whatever you do now in this life will actually matter forever. In other words, it's not just that you have a moment of being forgiven and accepted through Christ, and then you just kind of wait until the next thing on the timeline, which is the resurrection. It means that now the power of God is at work in you and through you. And what you do matters. You matter to God. Your life matters to God every moment of life matters to God. Look at the final sentence of the chapter. Here's the implication of the whole chapter. Therefore, my loved brothers and sisters, that's what a Christian is, loved by God and one another. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, And here's the motivation. Here's what we need to know in order for this to make sense knowing that in the Lord, in Christ, your labor, all this work, is not in vain. It's not empty. It's not meaningless. Your life matters. So the logic is because Jesus rose from the dead, verses 1 through 57, and therefore his people will rise from the dead, also verses 1 to 57, therefore, Verse 58, your life matters. You matter. So, be steadfast in life. Be immovable in your heart. Be abounding with work for Christ. Because it's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It's not in vain. It matters forever. So, what is the work of the Lord here? Well, we can summarize it like this. It's good work, well done, for the sake of Christ. So it's good work, work that contributes to human flourishing. It's good work well done, right? Not sloppy and shoddy, but done excellently. And it's good work well done for the sake of Christ. So, you don't do it for your own glory and reputation. You don't do it just for the accolades you get in your workplace or in your community. You do this for the honor of Christ. So, that's the kind of life that we were created to enjoy and abound in. And this includes what we could call explicit work for Christ, like ministry and mission. It includes the work we do in telling others about Jesus and the hope of the resurrection, in letting people know that God made you, your life matters, Jesus died and rose for you, and you can have an eternal future with Him, and your life can be put to use right now for His glory. That kind of work and sharing that message with others, welcoming people to follow Jesus. But it also includes All good vocations, all good work well done for the glory of Jesus. So, your work as a student, or as a mechanic, or as a teacher in the home or in the school, or as a homemaker, or as a parent, or your work in marketing, or in sales, or in finance, all of it matters. Good work well done for the glory of Christ matters because He has redeemed you, and He has an eternal future for you, and it's going to be continuing on in an eternal future that is lived as bodies in a new creation. So, how do we respond to all this? How do we respond in light of this reality that Jesus rose from the dead, and it means your life matters? It means you can look into this. It's historically credible. It means death will be put to death. It means embodied life matters. It means work matters. How do we respond to all of this? Well, just a few notes gathered mainly from the first few verses of the chapter. One, let's receive and re-receive this good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's how the chapter began. He said, I'd remind you. He's He's actually writing to Christians who already know a lot of this. He's reminding them of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved. So, receive this. Put out your empty hands of faith. Uh, let go of any clinging to any kind of sense of superiority you have or earning God's favor or measuring up in His sight. Just let go of that. Uh, you also don't need to bring in to view your bad works and sins. Those are irrelevant when you cling to Christ because they're buried in the tomb he forgives you. So you receive this, you receive this hope as well, this good news of the eternal future to come that he welcomes you into. Now maybe you've not done that. If you've not, you can do that right now this morning and receive not only the forgiveness of sins, but this whole new life of following Jesus on into this eternal future. Maybe you're not ready for this. Maybe you still have questions. Maybe you wonder okay, I need to settle it. Did He rise or not? Um, Is this true or not? And if that's you, I encourage you to keep looking into it. Investigate the claims of Jesus. One of the best ways you can do that is by reading through the early Christian witnesses, those who knew Jesus, and it witnessed the resurrection appearances and then wrote about Jesus. And you can do that in the Bible in Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. It's the beginning of the New Testament. So, if you grab one of those Bibles under a chair in front of you and you don't have a Bible, please take that with you. Um, It's our gift to you. And please just open it up to the New Testament and start reading about who Jesus is. Another thing you can do is find a really helpful book that articulates the claims of Jesus. Who is He? What did He do? What would it mean to follow Him? Um, And I actually have six copies of my favorite book. It's by um, John Stott called Basic Christianity. It's my favorite book on this topic uh, for exploring Jesus. And uh, that's free to you. If you are exploring Jesus, you've not yet begun following Him, but you want to look into what it would mean to know Jesus and follow Him, uh, please come up afterwards. I'll be up front here with these. I'd love to give you um, a copy. So, receive this good news. Second, stand in this truth. So he said, this is the good news that we've received and in which we stand. So receive it, stand in it, live in this, dwell in this, let this be your foundation, don't let go of this. Don't think that you can cling to the resurrection of Jesus as a metaphor. You either embrace the real Jesus or just let go of all of it. But embrace him and stand in this knowing that your sins are forgiven, that He loves you with all His heart from eternity past, and He's bringing you to an eternity future to enjoy knowing Him forever. Make Him known to others, encouraging others matters, so stand in these truths and enjoy them. And then finally, as the chapter ended, abound in good work, Um, because what you do today matters. What you do tomorrow morning. Matters. All of life matters. You don't need to despair. You don't need to live a life that says, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You can say, well, let's eat and drink because we're going to live forever. So let's enjoy life together, and let's do good work well done. Let's abound in this kind of work for the sake of Christ. So Jesus rose, and therefore, life matters forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this reminder of the resurrection of Jesus and all of its massive implications for life, and we thank You for Your work here this morning in helping us to understand, and we pray feel the significance of life eternal in Him. So, we pray that You would help us to wonder at Christ's resurrection, to celebrate His resurrection, to do it with full hearts and loud voices in the next few minutes, and Please give us hope, especially those who feel like they're so far away from it. Please give us hope in light of the resurrection of your Son. Amen.